This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime at our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m. or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m. or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. You know, any risk that the devil tempts us to take is a bad choice. That's a harmful risk if the devil's trying to tempt us to take that. In 1982, ABC Evening News reported on an unusual work of modern art. A chair affixed to a shotgun. It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the gun barrel. This is an art piece. Can you imagine? The gun was loaded and set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next hundred years. The amazing thing was that people waited in lines to sit and stare into the bullet's path. They all knew that the gun could go off at point-blank range at any moment, but they were gambling that the fatal blast wouldn't happen during their minute in the chair. Yes, it was foolhardy, yet many people who wouldn't dream of sitting in that chair, you know, live a lifetime gambling that they can get away with sin. Foolishly, they ignore the risk until the inevitable self-destruction. So there's people who take risk that are not healthy all the time, and uh, it's pretty... Foolish to sit down in front of a shotgun that somebody's art piece is going to go off at some point. That's pretty, that's not the kind of risk I'm talking about. I'm talking about a calculated risk that honors God. That's what I'm talking about. So when the devil tempts us to disobey God, don't take that kind of a risk ever. Anyhow, now I'm going to read you something. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 uh, through 14 in the Amplified Bible. And it might take me just a moment to get through it. It's just powerful. This is a passage that you can read a couple more times a day. And boy, if you want to memorize something, this is a good one. I'm reaching out of the Amplified Bible, and it says, Philippians 3, 7. It says, but whatever former things I had that might have been gained to me, that might have been gained to me, I have come to consider one combined loss for Christ's sake. So whatever things I had that might be considered a gain to me, oh, well, that's, you know, you know I've worked really hard, and I, I've, I've come to this, and, and I have this, and this is really a gain to me. This is what Paul says there. He says, but whatever former things I had that might have been gains to me, I have come to consider all of it. There was a gain to me. All of it, one combined loss for Christ. Hmm. What do you have? What do you own that takes you away from Christ? Think about it. Is there something in your life? Is it material possessions or relationship? There's thousands of different kinds of things that could become more important than having time with Christ and cultivating and developing your relationship with him. Anyhow, verse 8 says, Yes, furthermore, I count everything. Now, what percentage is everything? 
100%. Yes, furthermore, I count everything, everything I have, everything as loss compared to the possession of these. These next little phrases are fantastic. Uh, you know, I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Oh, there ain't nothing that you and I can own or have in this life that compares to knowing Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, he fills us up to overflowing. You know, our joy is full. You know, we have the peace and the forgiveness and the confidence. And when you have a relationship and your relationship with Christ can increase more and more, deeper and deeper, more intimate all the time. That's what these passages tells us about. And it says, and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Oh, that, that can happen. You might think, well, I know Jesus is my Savior. That's it. No, it's not. I know my wife a whole lot better now. You know, how many years has it been now, dear? There's a bunch of them, though. But I know her so much better right now than I did when we got married. And I know her better today than I did last year. Now, you can be satisfied. You get married. Well, okay. Uh, this is it. But it's not. It can progressively get better and better and better. And I'm just telling you, it can if you want it to. And it can get better and better and better and better in our relationship with Christ. That's just the way it is. So he says, of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving and, and recognizing and understanding him more fully. Well, wouldn't you like to, to understand God more fully and, and, and more clearly? Oh, man, that's available to us for his sake. The apostle said, I have lost everything. What percentage is it? Everything? I have lost everything. For his sake, I've lost everything. It don't amount to a hill of beans. Because when you got him, you got everything. And everything you need, he can provide. More fully and clear. For his sake, I've lost everything, and I consider it all to be mere rubbish. <laughs> Refuse. Dregs. I mean, that's all talking about garbage. In order that I may win, in order that I may gain Christ, the anointed one. I'm willing to lose everything that I can get in a closer relationship with him. Anything that keeps me away from God, we should lose. You know what I'm saying? Anything that's keeping us away from God, we should lose. Because, you know, we're trading in a relationship with God that can get better and better and better for a bag of garbage. <laughs> so he's making it very clear to us here. And he says in verse 9, and that I may actually be found, that I may actually be found and known as in him. The people will begin to recognize, you're in a relationship with Jesus, aren't you? Oh, we recognize you must be in a relationship with Jesus. And he says, in order that I may win and gain Christ, the anointed one, and that I may actually be found and known as in him, not having any 
self-achieved righteousness. This is just righteousness by my own human works, you know. That can be called my own. No. Based on my obedience to the law's demands, ritualistic uprightness and supposed right standing with God thus acquired. He says, I don't, I don't want that. That's empty. That's hollow. That's shallow, you know. I, I, I want to trust in the Lord for all my heart. The Bible says, lean, lean not on your, uh, on your own understanding. It's not our own righteousness we're pursuing. It, it, it's not, you know, our, our own spirituality that leaves God out of the picture here. No. Anyhow, says, it continues this, but possessing that genuine righteousness, <laughs> which comes through faith in Christ, the anointed one. The truly right standing with God, truly right standing, not just some religious, you know, jargon that makes us think that we're right with him, but truly, truly right standing with God, which comes from God by, what's that word say? By saving faith. I'm talking about faith that's real and genuine, that brings about salvation, that brings about forgiveness, that brings about your name being written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 10 says, for my determined purpose. you have a purpose for your life? Okay, one. Okay. Do we have two? Two? Give me three. Does anybody else have a purpose for life? Okay, three. Four. Okay. Four and a half. All right. But listen to what he says. For my determined purpose is that I may know him. Woo! What a purpose is that to know Christ. Jesus, and to know him progressively and, and more intimately and closer with understanding. I mean, more and more every day. For my, the says, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person. Wow. You mean I can get that much closer to Jesus? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. More strongly and more clearly, and that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection. To know him, you can get to know the power that comes out of his resurrection. And that resurrection power, it changes things. It empowers your praying. It changes the world in which we live the same way it changed Jesus' body from dead to alive to the Savior of the whole wide world. That resurrection power flows to us as we get better acquainted with Christ. I mean, what could be better than that? Instead of just having a bunch of gifts that he gives, what about having the giver himself and his resurrection power flowing to us and out through us? Oh, man. Where was that anyhow? Okay, down to the, more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over. Do you, do you know what a believer is? Someone who really genuinely adheres to, trusts in, relies on Christ? Do you believe in him? This resurrection power is for the believers. And that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit, 
Transformed into what? Into his likeness. Oh. I mean, what did Jesus suffer, really? Persecution. And we become like him, people are going to make fun of us, maybe slam us, maybe reject us. You know? It says, as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death in the hope that if possible, I may attain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me, that lifts me, not depresses me, not that sinks me into a hole, but, but that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in the body. Not that I have now attained, not that I have now attained this ideal or have already been made perfect. Has anybody here already attained and been made perfect? Just raise your hand. One, one, two hands, okay, I see those. By raising your hand, it disqualifies you from being perfect, though. It was almost there. None of us have attained at perfection as of yet. Not that I now have attained this ideal or have already been made perfect, but I press on. I'm a taker of rest, and I'm pressing on. I'm still in the race. I'm still in the fight. That's what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> I press on to lay hold of, to grasp, and make my own. I'm talking about relation. I'm talking about salvation and forgiveness and, and being Christ-like. I lay hold of and grasp and make my own that for which Christ, the Messiah, has laid hold of me and made me his own. I'm talking about relationship with him. I'm grabbing a hold of that and I'm doing my part to get better acquainted with him. And, and until you see him face to face one day, there's always improvement that we have available unto us to get closer to him. Verse 13 says, I do not consider, brethren, that I have captured and <clears throat> made it my own. What's the next word? Yet. Yet. <laughs> but I'm moving in that direction. But one thing I, I do, it's my one aspiration for getting what lies behind. You cannot go forward while looking behind you. You have a rearview mirror, and if you decide today, when you leave the church, you're only going to look in your rearview mirror. You're not going to look in front of you. We'll probably visit you at the hospital, okay? You can't continue to go forward while constantly looking behind you. Just don't work that way. It says, uh, verse 13, I do not consider, brethren, that I have captured and made it my own yet. But one thing I do, and it's my one aspiration, forgetting what lies behind, you know, really changing my direction, changing my priorities, changing my purpose. All that stuff was behind me. And I'm growing and I'm moving forward in my relationship with Christ. And he says, forgetting what lies behind and what's that next word? Straining. You've, you've got a noble purpose and I'm straining forward. You know, they teach you in football, if you get tackled and you're going to hit the ground, fall toward the goalpost. You know, that's a couple yards you can make. You fall, jump toward the goalpost, you know. So I gained a couple yards there, you know. And, and that's kind of what he's talking about here. I'm straining forward, you know. I'm risking it all to what? 
lies ahead. Is my little sign still there? What does it say? The best is yet to come. And that's based upon biblical truths. The best is yet to come. It genuinely is. Some people live, well, the worst is yet to come. Yeah, without Christ, you're right. But when you have Christ in your life, the best is absolutely positively yet to come. Uh, Verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal. You know, risking and and giving God my all. I'm I'm pressing on toward the, the goal to this awesome, fantastic, wonderful relationship with him as resurrection power flowing to and through us. I press on toward the goal. To win the supreme heavenly prize. To which God in Christ is calling us. Which direction? Upward. That would be heavenward. You know. We're talking about he's calling us to salvation. He's calling us to forgiveness. He's calling us to to be Christ. Like he's calling us into a closer and closer intimate relationship with him. That's what I'm talking about. You know. You know, Abraham had a relationship with God. And Abraham, in the Old Testament, he was a taker of risk. And if you'll think about this for a moment, God told Abraham, he said, I want you to leave everything, leave your father's house, leave everything that's behind you, and I want you to go into a land that I'll show you on the way. He didn't have an address. He was just going to wander around until God says, this is it. He was a risk taker. He was a taker of risk. Because he chose to obey Almighty God. Now, um, I may have shared some of this with some of you guys in the past. I don't really remember. But I have a had, he's in, in heaven with the Lord. Now, my Uncle Gray's, Uncle Gray's Ford. And uh, when I got out of uh, high school, he, he gave me a little job. Now, he installed, he made, you know, all the ductwork that you needed for furnaces and air conditioner. And he installed all of his life, you know, air conditioners and furnaces and fixed them and repaired them. And since I don't like people to know this, but since I took air conditioning, refrigeration and heating, and when I was in high school, the vocational part of school, he hired me. His sons didn't want anything to do with it. And he had offered me his business once he retired, you know, and, uh, I came to my conclusion pretty quickly. I appreciated him giving me work, and it was wonderful learning the things. But I, and this is what I thought to myself: I don't want to be doing this because God had called me to do something else. I don't want to be doing this when I was sixty years old. I'm sixty-five now, and 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 that ain't old. Don't laugh or chuckle or nothing, okay? I heard that. Anyhow. Uh, I was working for my uncle. I was uh, going to Bible studies. I was praying. I was reading. I was doing everything I could to draw near to God. And I asked him one day to tell me what he knows about marriage. Because I'm getting ready to ask Susan to marry me. And my uncle, he told me very clearly that he would never marry if he had a chance to do it over again. All the responsibility for taking care of everybody, doing this and that, you know. And I'm sitting there in the in the truck as we're going to another job there, and I'm asking for some comfort and some encouragement because I'm getting ready to ask the question. You know, I didn't tell him that part, but he's just telling me, "Oh no, it just takes all the way all your and on and on and on and on and on." He went, you know. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, 
To be honest with you, within one or two days, I asked Susan to marry me. Anyhow, despite that, I think I was taking a risk, don't you think? It was a great risk to take, you know? And uh, my last hitchhiking ordeal, I spent about two years hitchhiking across the nation with a backpack full of tracks and my guitar and a sleeping bag. And I traveled all around, telling everybody I could, best way I knew how, about Jesus, you know. And that's when I recognized I really needed some more study, some more training, because there was so much that I did not know. And on my last adventure out, when I was coming back in, I can't, don't have time to tell you all the details of it right now, but a guy brought me right to my grandmother's door. That's where I was staying at the time. And my grandmother was really my spiritual giant, and she really... You know, uh, prayed for me, and she was teaching me God's word. We would read it together. She made a big impact upon my life. Anyhow, my sister, who was in college, and her husband, who was in college, was finishing up. I was there. I came in wearing my short blue jeans, and I had with these little brass tacks that says, Jesus is. And then a great big, long, thick string that I had threaded in there, and I left about this much hanging out. I was like, what in the world is Jesus is? And that, what's that? I mean, he is everything. There's enough of cord there that you can write anything you wanted to. That's what I wore, and usually a green T-shirt. And a great big old cross I had around my neck. For years, that's about all you'd ever see me in. And so if I was in there. They were doing their study, and they were in school still, standing at Grandma's house. She wasn't there for the time, so I cooked them dinner. While they're in the living room studying I was washing the dishes. I had put a lot of soap in there, and I was washing dishes. I had hair down to here, and I had a beard at the time, you know. And I was washing, and God spoke to me. Has God ever spoke to you? He spoke to me. I'm sorry. I stepped across that invisible line there, didn't I? Okay, I'm sorry. But God spoke to me, and he told me. He said, and I don't hear his voice audibly very often, but he spoke to me profoundly. He said, get married, and go to Bible school. And I was in there, bubbles was floating everywhere in the house, you know. I was there hooting and hollering and praising God. And she's like, because I wasn't going to do anything without his direction, you see. And while I was there, you know, they, what in the world's going on there? I went and told them, and I called Susan right there. So this is what God told me, you know. And we, we charted our course, our determined purpose. At that point, to get married and go off to Bible school so we could serve God more effectively. That's what God had spoke to me. That's taking a pretty good risk, isn't it? Getting married is taking a risk, you know. Uh, then going off to Bible school and all that kinds of stuff, you know. And so Susan and I, we, well, she was still finishing up her high school, okay. So I was, you know, had opportunity to do some work Back and forth, back and forth. Anyhow, I went and rented an apartment in the town where the Bible school was at. I rented an apartment. We got married. We moved into the apartment and went. Uh, the Bible school was part of a church. It had grown out of a church. And we went to the church, the Sunday night service. And the school started the next day. Never registered. Never called them and applied. You know, I'm just a simple-minded old country boy, okay? I didn't know you were supposed to do all that. They had a Bible school. I wanted to go. I figured I'd just show up for it, you know? Bring the farmer, got married, should have there and told him, you know, what we wanted to do. And it's just like, okay. We was accepted on the spot. 
Now, you might consider that a risk, you know, and it, I might consider it a pretty serious risk at, at this moment in my life. And then three months from that time, when we started school, we were pregnant and expecting Judah, who pastors thrive now. Now, Susan and I were virgins when we got married. We were. And, and let me share something with you. That greatly impacts your life when you choose to do things God's way. But I have performed so many weddings over the years, and I've come to the conclusion that a lot of people haven't chosen that way. But if you repent of your unfaithfulness to God and toward your spouse, if you genuinely repent, ask God to forgive you, guess what? He'll forgive you. And then you can honest to goodness act like you were a virgin when you got married. Once you've made your commitment, I'm just telling you because lots of people have so much regret they can't hardly move forward. But let God cleanse you. Now, I had never been with a woman ever and, and Susan hadn't been with a man ever and we chose that and it's a blessing to get married that way. But if you've done things that you shouldn't have done, you repent and you choose to live the rest of your life in a God-honorable way and you can say, yes, I was pure when I got married. Because God, if I'm not mistaken, he... he he actually forgives. Do you, you believe that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Yes, he does absolutely forgive. Okay. Well, Susan and I, we have not arrived yet. But we're still straining and pressing and reaching forward and upward to become all that he wants us to be to become Christ-like and to know him in a most awesome and fantastic and intimate way that he reveals to us and so his resurrection power can flow to us and through us. And that's available to us all. To all of us. I'm just asking just what it is. Let me read verse 14 one more time there that we was reading in... Uh, so where was we reading that in? In Philippians 3, 14, it says, I press on toward the goal. You know, I'm talking about giving God our all. I'm pressing on toward the gulf to win the supreme and heavenly prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling us. Where? Upward. I like that. You know, are you straining for the prize? Or is it, well, you know, if, yeah, every once in a while I get some time for God and I might go to church. I, I might read my Bible. I might even pray or sing every once in a while. But are you straining? To do it. It's like, oh, I can't wait for morning to come. It's like spend some time with God and fight off them coyotes to get up on the top of that mountain, you know? We had to fight no coyotes, really, but are you straining? Are you exerting energy so you can get closer to Him? I press on toward the goal to win the supreme heavenly prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling us upward. Are you moving heavenward? Are you moving upward? in your relationship with the Almighty God, you know. Every vacation Bible adventure that we've ever had, it is a great risk. Financially, it's a great risk. If we prepare for hundreds of kids and for them to show up, and it takes about 300 adults to pull it off, it's a risk every year. And I have had quite a few people from this church, and several pastors have told me, you know, there's better things you can do with your time and energy and money. 
you know, and you should stop this vacation Bible adventure kind of thing, you know. But you know what? As far as I'm concerned, the children are worth the risk. They're worth the risk to tell them about Christ at a young age, which I didn't know really about him at a young, young age. Well, it was a young age, probably as a teenager for some people, but we can tell them about Christ and, and save them a world of trouble. And uh, so it's a risk that we so gladly are willing to take. And this past year was even a bigger risk because we never done it online before. You know, we didn't know what in the world we were doing. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 says, I command you to be strong and courageous and do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you. Where? Wherever you go. And if you remember Joshua and Caleb, they went with the spies that went into the promised land to see if the land was as God had told Moses and all the leaders there that it was. And they went in there, 10 of them went in there and, and, and a whole bunch of them came back and said, there's giants there. We can't go and take this land. You know, and Joshua and Caleb jumped up and said, hey, cool it, man. I am telling you, we're well able to take the land. Now that was kind of a risk, don't you think? It was a risk to obey God. That's what you call faith. It was a risk, you know. And so we're well able to take that land. Only risk takers play at the Super Bowl. Do you know only risk takers are in the Olympics? They're, they're taking some risk, you know. And, 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 and that is faith. That's what, when, when the Bible talks about having faith, it's talking, if, if you have faith in some, about something, uh, you're willing to take some risk because you believe it. That's what I'm talking about right here, you know. Faith always takes risk. 30 years ago, Susan, because she knew my southern mentality, she knew what makes me tick and, and what my hobbies and my interests was, she provided for me a a trip to go to Canada. And it was a, a bear hunting trip with a bow and arrow. I don't think she was trying to get rid of me, you know. But she, that was a Father's Day gift. It was in June, it was June, spring, huh? And anyhow, it was a 10 days. And I got up in the, across the border and drove all the miles into Canada. And then I got on this dirt road and it was a, uh, it was 80 miles. The, the last farmhouse, the last civilization, it was 80 miles from there where I was going to go on a bear hunt. And you had to bring enough of gasoline to get you back to a service station. That's to be there for 10 days and drive back and forth out into the woods on these logging roads and then have enough gas to get back to civilization. I'd say that was probably a risk, you know. But oh, I'm going to tell you what, that barbecued bear was delicious. He hung on my wall in my house for some time. This is this years ago, you know. And I don't know if you knew it, but there was nine ladies and two young girls on Friday night from our church right here, this past Friday night. They went on the Appalachian Trail and they hiked in as it was getting later toward evening time and they put up tents and they prepared their food and you can't have campfires. They slept in the darkness out there, you know? Uh, and and uh, do y'all know Natalie Miano? She was one of them. 
She was a young girl, you know. But there's a place that had never been camping before. I think that's pretty risky, don't you? Oh, I ain't going to tell you all the rest of the story about it, you know. But it was very interesting what they, they did. Now, when I was a, a, a kid, I was fishing. Anyhow, I saw a snake. Suddenly I jumped up through the bushes. I found two bite, you know, two teeth marks on my legs. Rushed to the hospital. They did their old thing to get the venom out. And the doctor said, you know what? I just cleaned two briars out of your leg. When I jumped to get a wife, I went through the blackberry bushes and got two. If the holes had been this far apart, I would have known it wasn't a snake. But it was just the right size. Anyhow, I got pretty aggravated at snakes after that. So I learned what was what. And, uh, well, I'll tell you. You might have heard people talking about grabbing a snake by the tail and popping him like a whip and popping his head off. Well, I've done that dozens of times as a kid. Okay. Now, I know you wouldn't expect Pastor Ron to be doing stuff like that. It's been a long time since I've done that, you know. What was it, about three months ago? This snake kept trying to get to this nest and eat the baby birds. And I caught him and threw him way off in the woods. And he came back. And he lost his head over that whole deal. That was kind of risky. And I've done that dozens of times. That's, that's just what country boys do, you know. And as time progressed, uh, we was out fishing one day, and, and uh, my brother, who's a police officer, was on the motor, and he's going in this direction up there in this, what we call a creek, that's part of, uh, frozen to a, a lake. And we was going up through this little swampy area, and this big old anaconda-like snake, this is 14 foot long, 13 and a half, 14 foot long, was coming toward us. And I had Judah, he was about four, four or five years old, in the middle, and I held him, you know, and I passed him off to my uh, brother-in-law, and he was holding him, and I pulled out a BB gun that I had, and the snake was climbing into the boat, and I hit him with the barrel of the gun, and he came up, was coming up on the other side, and my brother was backing up from the motor, and the snake came up again. Anyhow, I killed the snake. And I believe all them years of popping snakes' heads off and all those kinds of crazy things that I did, maybe I'm not too proud of that now. Maybe I am, you know. But I was ready for the big snake when it came. And I was reading something, and it's just like it just jarred me when I read, like, because David had killed lions and bears. Well, the Bible says stuff that was coming after his sheep. It prepared him. He took risk. It prepared him to fight Goliath. Are you a risk taker? A risk taker is like you read something in this book and it's like, okay. And you do it. And, and, and you're not manipulated and controlled by fear no more, but you're controlled by what Almighty God's Word tells us to do. You know. Have you risked anything? Lately. Now, for lots of little stories I was telling you was about a long time ago. But I think Susan might have thought them coyotes this morning was a risk that she didn't really want to take. But since she was with me, she's like, okay, you know. Because I was smiling the whole time. You know, I was just like daring them, you know. Uh, you know that word doggone? Y'all might not use that in the, the north, but that's... That's what would happen to them coyotes if they come after us, you know. They'd be doggone, you know. That's just the way it is, you know. Disciples of Christ are risk takers. 
They're not manipulated and controlled by fear. They're willing to do what Almighty God says. And, and disciples are, are cross bearers. Take up your cross. And that just simply means deny yourself and follow Jesus and get closer and closer and closer to him every day. It is fantastic. It is wonderful. And what he will have you and me doing is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and then and to love our neighbor, you know, to love and care about our neighbor because that's what he does. That's what he does. And if you get close to him, that's what you're going to do, and I'm going to tell you it's worth it to love your neighbor. There's a cranky old man whom Pastor Thornton had in vain urged to come to church. And he was taken ill, and he uh, was confined to his bed. And Pastor Thornton went to the cottage, and he asked to see him. And the old man, hearing Pastor Thornton's voice below downstairs, answered in a very discourteous tone, I don't want you here. You may go away now. It was not very hospitable. The following day, the pastor was again at the front of the stairs. Well, my friend, may I come up today and, and sit beside you? And again, he received the same reply. I don't want you here. 21 days successively, Pastor Thornton paid his visit to the cottage. And on the 22nd day, his perseverance was rewarded. It was he was permitted to enter the room of the old man to read the Bible and to pray for him at his bedside. The elderly man, reco the elderly man recovered and became one of the most regular and faithful attendants to the house of God. And so says uh, Charles Haddam Spurgeon. You know, to care for people, if you care about people, that's kind of risky because you know, People will hurt you. Did you all know that? It's just like the Bible refers to us as sheep. There's one thing I know about sheep. Sheep bite. For real. And what else do sheep do? They will butt you. We have seen our kids knocked down and trampled on because of sheep. And I had to hobble along for several weeks because of a sheep butted me. So that's something I know about sheep. You know, you go into film for sheep, they can hurt you. And so can the body of Christ. They can hurt you, you know. And people really don't care what you know until they know that you care. You know, and, and Pastor Thornton, he took a risk. And it made an eternal difference in the life of that old man because he took a risk. Take a risk. Obey Almighty God and, and change this world that we, we live in. There's another article. You're probably familiar with this guy, the Reverend... Dr. Martin Luther King, he has a national day set aside in his memory and he presents an important personification to us in modern America of a person called to do an overwhelming task. That task cost Dr. King his life and it is still incomplete in our nation to this day. Martin Luther King knew that he was put in a place in a special time because God had a use for him. Now the truth of it is, oh, you guys watching online and all of you guys in here, God has a use for you. Now that's, that's not fictitious. That's not hopeful. I'm telling you what the Bible says. God has a use for you. And if you wouldn't mind, would you look to the person beside you and just point your little finger at them and tell them, God 
has a use for you. He has a use for you. God has a use for you. And I'm telling you the truth. That's just the way it is. Anyhow, Martin wanted a quiet life as a professor. And he had earned a PhD at Boston University and hoped to possibly be president of Morehouse College in Atlanta someday. Through an odd turn of events, as a young pastor, he was thrust into the forefront of the Montgomery bus boycott. It was in Montgomery that his youth and inexperience was tested. After a contentious series of public meetings and confrontations, he came home late one night, tired and frightened. The phone rang. An angry voice on the other end said, We're going to get you, you blankety blank, blank, blank. Martin Luther King stood in his kitchen frozen in fear. He wanted to call Daddy King for reassurance and advice, but Daddy King was not there. And then he said it was like a voice. Martin, you do what's right. You stand up for justice. You be my drum major for righteousness. And the most important words you can ever hear from God, I will be with you. And I see that throughout my Bible. I will be with you. He had heard his name called. He knew what God wanted. And his life was forever changed. And through his life, so was the world. It was more than personal courage and strong faith and a good education that gave Martin Luther King what he needed to rise above the fear. He was given a vision that was greater than his own. And we've been given a vision that's greater than our own. And we've been called. Every one of you has been called by the Almighty God himself. Listen to what he says here in Matthew 22, 14. It says, Jesus says, he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, see, though, he never chose me. Let me tell you why. Many are called. Have you ever got a call on your telephone? Let me ask you something. Because we have caller ID nowadays, have you ever, oh, I don't want to talk to them right now. Have you ever acted like you wasn't there? Many are called, but because we don't answer God's call, we're not chosen. Because we don't want to talk to him, but because he might ask more of us than we're willing to get involved with. Many are called, but few are chosen. The, the ones who answer Hey, God, oh, man, yeah, oh, me, woohoo, okay, let's go, let's do it. But he's like, I don't want to serve God. I don't want to involve my time, energy, and resource. I don't want to do that, you know. But many are called, it says, but few are chosen. But God's called you. We talked about a little bit last week. He's called you to see the invisible, and he's called you to do the impossible. I'm telling you, that's the God who we serve, who created us, and he's called us to love and serve him and to love and serve people on this whole planet. That's just the truth of it, you know? You remember the Shepherd Meshach and Abednego? Uh, their, their, emperor, their king told them, now, when you hear this special music play, you worship the golden image. And thousands of people bowed down, but Shepherd Meshach and Abednego was like, you kind of stand out really big when everybody's kneeling and their head on the ground and you're standing up there. That was taking a serious risk. 
And because of it, they got thrown in a fire. But that's why you and I know about them. Because they threw three them brothers into the fire. But the king, and we know about there was how many in the fire? Four. And one of them looked like the Son of God. Because they was willing to take a risk to obey God and to honor God and to worship only him. It says here in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the oak tree at, at Oprah's? Oh, Ophrah. Okay, all right. At least we'll remember that place now. It sat beneath the oak tree at Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash and of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, had been threshing wheat at the bottom of the wine press. Why? To hide the grain from the Midianites. That was the enemy, you know. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero! And Gideon said, who, who else is here? Oh. Me? Because he was hiding from the enemy, you know. Almighty hero! Taker of risk. The Lord is with you. And that's not the way that Gideon felt. And it's probably not the way you and I feel a lot of the time. We don't feel that way. The Lord is with you. Verse 30. Sir, Gideon, sir, Gideon replied. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? If, if the Lord is with us, why has this coronavirus happened to us? If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Where are all the miracles at? I'm telling you, they're right here. They're ready to happen. Didn't they say that the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. That's how Gideon is feeling. He's just being honest with God. Verse 14, and then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue, you I'm talking to, rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you, exclamation mark. Verse 15, but, but Lord Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, those important words, I will be with you. That's the deal. That changes everything when God says, I'll be with you. Not just some gifts I give you. I'm personally going to be there with you. And anything you need, I am that. I will be with you. See, God's Presence can make a doubt-filled man an awesome taker of risk. You know, he says, "I will be with you, and you will you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against how many? One man." Hmm. Gideon took some risk, and he only had a handful of men. Do you know how many of the enemy was there? 135,000. 135,000. Now listen as God goes on. In, in Judges chapter 7 verse 1 says, So Jerubah, Jerubah, 
How do you say that? You're not sure? I don't know why in the world it's in there in the first place. Because it says so, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. Why don't they just say it's Gideon, okay? Why does he got to have two names that confuse us? So, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, <laughs> and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod, and the armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of, uh, what was that? M-O-R-E-H, how do you say that? Take a risk. Yeah, that's the way you say it. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. Do you know how many warriors that Gideon had? 32,000. Do you know how many the enemy had? 135,000. And God says, Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I... If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. That's what God said. Therefore tell the people whoever is timid or afraid may leave and go home. Do you know how many left and went home? You can read really good. 22,000 of them went home. They were not risk takers. If you don't want to fight this, but just go on home. 22,000, you know, of these guys, of the 32,000, they went home, you know, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. There are some risk takers. Verse 4 says, But the Lord told Gideon, There are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will sort out who will go with you, and who will not? Only 300 remained, and 9,000 more, 700, they went home. And Gideon had 300 men. And they were going to fight against an army that was coming to destroy them of 135,000. The odds, God considered, the odds was in good. The odds were really, really good because not only did he didn't have 300 men, but he had God. And I'm going to tell you, with God, you are the majority. I'm telling you. And then God told Gideon, he said, and I didn't have any of these uh, clay pots or nothing. <laughs> I've been wondering where that noise comes from every once in a while. I didn't have a chance to get a clay pot, so I just happened to get a lantern that I had in my home, and uh, God told Gideon, he said, I want you to get these clay jars, and I want you to put a, an a oil lamp, you know, olive oil lamp inside of it, and the, the lids don't fit very good, and you put the lids on it, and you know, your 300 men to carry their lamp out into the battlefield, and this was at night. And God told him, he said, I want you to go out there, and then I want you to bust the clay jar. And what happens when you bust the clay jar? Then the lamp shows brightly. And then he told him, he says, I want you all to carry a, a horn, ram's horn with you. And you bust the clay jar, the light shines out, and everybody blows on their horn. And you know what happened? 135,000 men got up, come back this way, this way. 
Now, I got to go past this line to get this thing, okay? Is that okay, dear? All right. With a horn and a busted jar, I bet you where that battle is at, you can still find pieces of clay pot to this day. Oh. I'm going to get back over here where I'm supposed to be. Y'all don't have electric charge on this thing, do you? Oh, man, that'd be bad, wouldn't it? Anyhow, it says... Uh, when they broke the jar, they blew the horn. The enemy, 135,000 of them, fled, left all their food, all their animals, all their, their swords, all the, everything they had. They got up and they ran. They ran home. God told him to fight the Midianites, and he says, and the battle will be like you're fighting one man. But oh, here, let's, let's, let's whittle the odds down better in your favor. And I'm going to tell you, whatever you give up to have more God in your life, you are the majority. I'm telling you, you're the majority, and you, uh, you're favored to win the battle. That's just the way it is. Anyhow, there's another great risk I want to talk to you about, and we're about ready to wind this thing down, but there's a great risk you know, which we all face from time to time, and it's probably one of the biggest risks. And, it's, and it's, I know you're not going to like this word. You know, it's really not profanity, but a lot of people are not willing to take the risk of, here it goes, change. Do you like change? We always do it this way. God, this is the way we do things around here, you know. But we need to be willing to change. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, It's no light thing to know. It's no light thing to know that we'll all one day stand in that place of judgment. That's why we work urgently with everyone. And what percentage is everyone? 100%. That's why we work urgently with everyone we meet to get them ready to face God. Do you work with people that's in your sphere of influence to get them ready to face God one day? They will face God and they'll have to give account. Well, I didn't know. Well, your neighbor knew. He didn't tell you. You know? Anyhow, it says, that's why we work urgently with everyone, 100%. We meet to get them ready to face God. God alone knows how well we do this. But I hope you realize how much and deeply we care. Now, listen to the next part of the verse I'm going to read. It says, if I act, what's that word? If I acted crazy, I did it for God. Now, is it okay to act a little bit crazy when you're telling people about God? I think so. I got a little, forget that noise. That's not on purpose. That's not part of my prop. Are y'all familiar with a Nalgene bottle? Nalgene bottle. You know, you care when you go backpacking and stuff like that. And it has all this wonderful mist and stuff like that. And it goes, goes way out. Oh, I'm, it's sterile. It's, it's, it's clean water, just so y'all know that. You know, it's just like, whoa. That's just a Nalgene bottle. You know, Wow. I have been known to do some pretty crazy things in church, not just for the kids, but for the adults as well. 
Oh, wait, this thing's still loaded. You got to be careful. It's loaded, you know? And sometimes we do some pretty crazy things. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to put that down there. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We do some crazy things to communicate with people about the amazing power of God. And he said out of our innermost being would flow rivers of what? Living water. And that's the way you and I are supposed to be. And he says it right here. And I love the way the message says it. If I acted crazy, I did it for God. If I acted over serious, overly serious, I did it for you. Christ's love has moved me to such extremes. His love has the first and the last word in everything we do. Verse 14 says, our firm decision is to work from the focused center. One man died for everyone. His name was Jesus. For 100% of everybody, one man died for everyone. That puts everyone, 100% of them, in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. A resurrection life where you tap into that resurrection power changes things, man. A far better life than people ever lived on their own. When Jesus comes in, it changes the way you live your life, man. And he goes on to say in verse 16, because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. I mean, some people are just weird. They have long beards and stuff like that, you know. We looked at the Messiah that way once, and we got it all wrong. As you know, we, we certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now, we look inside. Oh, we're not looking on the... We're looking on the inside. What's on the inside? The heart. Now we look inside... And what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a, what's that say? A fresh start. It's created new. The old life is gone. Now, people who don't know Christ, they need a fresh start. But let me ask you, what about you? You ever need a fresh start? All of us do. From time to time... We might not do something that God told us, or we might do something that he told us not to do. We might not act the way he wants us to act. And we're going like, man, that's on my record. I, f- I feel so bad. It's like, sometimes all of us just need a fresh start. And I'm going to tell you what, Jesus provides a fresh start for everyone. And he says right here, now we look inside, and what we see it is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is what? Gone. A new life does what? Yeah, I said, why in the world do you use a word? It's so complicated. I don't know what in the world it means. It myself. Virgins. But I did look it up in the dictionary, and it means the new life, the word virgins means to grow or develop quickly. It means to flourish. The old life is gone, and the new life flourishes. That's, that means that there's been, a, there's been a change. Any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are, are gone. Oh, the new life is just flourishing. It's abundant. Look at it. The Bible says, all this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him. And then he called us to settle our relationships with each other. He settled things between us and we're forgiven. And, we're for- and then we need to go and forgive everybody who's ever hurt us or offended them, offended, offended us. Can we forgive others who've hurt us? 
Yeah, I heard that. Hmm. I, I heard that because I've stood around this altar and I've challenged people. So you can go free. You, you got to forgive. Hmm. I'm going to tell you. After what God's forgiven all of us for, we can forgive anybody. We really can. Let me see if I can find where I was at there. Well, I'll just start back here. Look at it. All of this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. Let's do it. Let's settle things I don't know how long it's going to be before we see Jesus face to face, but it's going to probably be quicker than you think. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, through Jesus, giving the world a... Could you possibly give somebody a fresh start who don't deserve it? Oh, let me ask you. Did you deserve the fresh start when God gave it to you? You did deserve it? You earned it? Well, I didn't. Myself, because the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. And so we really didn't deserve it, but he forgave us just because he's crazy about us, because he loves us. And, and he says, given the world a fresh start, the world, the, the human world that don't really know Christ, give the world a fresh start by offering what? Forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. Hmm. The world can definitely use a fresh start. They're carrying so much regret and so much guilt along with them. God has given us the task of telling, what's that next word? What percentage is that? God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing and he's given everybody a fresh start. We're Christ, what's that word? We're Christ's representatives. We're to represent him and let everybody know. God's given everybody a fresh start. You think this financial deal that the government's giving you is pretty good? It runs out pretty quick. But forgiveness don't. What I'm talking about, we're Christ's representative, and God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. And it says... Become friends with God. That's the good news. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. You just don't know it. But become friends with God. He just wants to forgive you. He just wants to write your name in the book of life. He just wants to be there for you. He's crazy about you. This is our task. This is, this is what we've been called to. Years ago, a Sunday school in Philadelphia was overcrowded, much like some of our children's departments in churches today. And a little girl was turned away. Not enough room. Can you believe that? And she began that day to save her pennies to help the Sunday school have more room. Two years later, this little girl died. And they found a pocketbook by her bed with 57 pennies and a little scrap of paper with a note saying to help the church build a bigger Sunday school. So she went and they, they had to turn her away because they didn't have no room for her. The pastor of that church, Dr. Russell Conwell, he used that note to make a dramatic appeal to his congregation. People's hearts were touched. 
One realtor gave the church a piece of land and he said he just wanted a down payment of 57 pennies. The local newspaper picked up the story and was carried across the country and the pennies grew and the results can be seen in Philadelphia today. And the guy who wrote the article says, I've never been to that spot, but I'd like to go and see that church. It sits 3,300 people with a large Sunday school department. I'd like to visit their university and the Good Samaritan Hospital that came about as a result of those 57 pennies. I'd like to visit the room at the university where the little girl's picture is on the wall with a reminder that she gave 57 cents with an amazing result. She never saw it with her natural eyes, but she saw it in faith. She was a risk taker. And a little girl who was not allowed to come to Sunday school because they didn't have room for her began. She didn't get mad and say, well, that's a terrible church. She began to save her pennies to help other people, and she has helped them by the thousands. She was a risk taker. And, and, and we just take the risk where we're at, you know? God wants us to change from, from sinner to saint. He wants us to change from lost to saved. He wants us to change from living in the kingdom of darkness to living in the kingdom of light. He wants us to change from being the old man to being a new person, from being blind spiritually to being able to see on a spiritual level, you know? God wants us to change from being greedy to being generous, you know? But most people do what? They resist change. They don't like change. Well, we never did it that way before, you know? Because change is risky. It really is. You remember Elijah? He was down there living by the brook, and God had sent a raven with a piece of meat every day to feed him. And there was a stream going by him. And then God said, I want you to go down. There's a widow I want you to go down and minister to. And Elijah wouldn't go. What did God do? He dried up the stream. And he told the raven, I don't want you going and seeing him no more. So Elijah's like, God, please provide me with some water and something to eat. It's just like, no, I've already provided it. But it's down at that widow's house where she's got a little bit of flour and just a little bit of oil, but there's a big anointing coming down there and she's going to have all she needs. I wonder if there's things that happen in our life because we're unwilling to change sometimes. It takes a risk. and It took him a risk and we have phenomenal history and phenomenal stories because he did take the risk, you know. It's easy to get comfortable is it not, where we are. Very easy to get comfortable, you know. Israelites didn't want to leave Egypt. You know, if you think that before they did, they wanted to go to the promised land, but they got out there, all they was eating is manna every day, and they was going, oh, but we remember the garlics, oh, and the leeks, and the onions. Oh, we want to go back to Egypt. They forgot that they were slaves down there. God had changed their location. But they forgot about all that. They wanted to go back to the familiar. They wanted to go back to that which was comfortable, you know. Prisons are full of of repeat offenders. They're not willing to change. Take a risk and change, I'm talking about. We all need change in some areas of our life. 
Now, I'm not going to read it because of our time, but if you would read for me, Romans 7, 18 through 19, it just tells us, I didn't want to do that, but I did it. Uh, I, I didn't want to, but I did it. And it just shows us, I, I wrestle with that, that you know, selfishness on the inside of us. So read that later on, on, on your own. We can only change the outside. We can get a new hairdo. We can wear makeup. We can buy some new clothes and things like that. Well, you and I can only change what is on the outside. It takes God to change what's on the inside. Last passage we're going to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read to you in the Amplified Bible. It says, And all. What percentage is all? 100%. And all of us, as with unveiled face, unveiled, unveiled face, no napkin, no curtain, no, no, no mask, you know, all of us with an unveiled face. That means looking face to face with Almighty God, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm talking about having this awesome, fantastic, recognizing God as a, as a, the living, personal presence that He is. And, and, and not thinking, well, yeah, I'm not looking face to face with a chiseled piece of stone or, or chiseled piece of wood. And it says here, and all of us, as with an unveiled face, I'm talking about face to face with the Almighty God Himself. All of us, as with unveiled face, because we continued to behold. You know what behold means? It means look upon. With your eyeballs, you know? And all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continued to behold or to look upon in the Word of God. It's like a mirror and it reflects Him. That's what He's talking about. We continue to behold in the Word of God as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are constantly being transfigured. What does transfigured mean? Changed. Because we're looking upon, we're beholding God in His Word. He's revealing Himself to us through His Word. He says we're constantly being transfigured, transformed, changed into His very own image. We're becoming like Christ as we look upon Him in His Word. And we are changed into His very own image in ever-increasing splendor from one degree of glory to another. If we're not changing... We're not beholding him in his word. And I'm telling you, God wants you and me to take a risk. And he wants us to change and become Christ-like. And I'm going to tell you something. It is the most dynamic, exciting, fun-filled adventure to live in close relationship with Jesus. Ain't nothing no better. Oh, you can have a few gifts and get by with them, but it's better to have the giver with you. And anything you need, he'll just provide it for you. You know what I'm talking about? Anyhow, our time is up. But I want to challenge you to take the risk of change and behold him today and tomorrow. Behold him. Look upon him. Get to know him and let him reveal himself to you. Now I'm going to pray for you. And uh, I'm going to ask Susan to come up here first, okay? You do that. Well, if you know Jesus, I'd like you to reaffirm your faith because there's people who are probably in our building here and watching online who don't know him or maybe they've drifted off course or maybe they need to get better acquainted with Christ today. So I'd like you to reaffirm your faith in Christ as I pray right now. It's just going to take a minute, you know, and uh, 
reaffirm your faith to some people, declare their faith for the very first time. So would y'all join me as we pray? And then I got something to tell you. Would y'all pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father. Dear Heavenly Father. I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me. And you got a purpose for my life. And you've got a purpose for my you life. You want to use me. You want to use me. I believe that's why you sent Jesus. I believe that's why you sent Jesus. And I believe that Jesus gave his life for me. And I believe that Jesus gave his life for me. He gave his life on a cross. He gave his life on a cross. And then he rose from the dead. And then he rose from the, the third dead day. On the third day. I believe he's knocking at the door of my heart. I believe he's knocking at the door of my heart. And I open wide that door. And I open wide that door. And I welcome Jesus. And I welcome Jesus. Into my life. Into my life. As my Savior. As my Savior. As my Lord. As my Lord. And as my soon coming King. And as my soon coming King. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And for writing my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And for writing my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.